Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. We will proceed this evening with our discussion of Paramatmasandarva of Srila Jiva Goswami, 70th Anacheda. Now we're going to enter a different, uh, a different realm of uh, refuting uh, misconception by Jiva Goswami. And remember, this is all one Anacheda, so he's covering a lot here. So now he's going to go on, and he's covered those who, the Vivarta Vadis, we would call them, those that believe that the universe is false. And they have their reasons, and he's refuted those. And in many different ways, he's refuted them from many different angles. And he's put together, put forward many objections from their camp. And then he's refuted those himself. Now he's going to go to the Karma Mimamsa camp. Now the Karma Mimamsas, uh, if we remember that little uh, display of worship, which was questioned by Krishna, he actually went to his father and said, what's going on here? Why are you at the end of the harvest season? Why are you having a, a festival for Indra? Because really... What did he have to do with it? You planted the seeds, the sun came, the rains came. You put your work into the project and you have a harvest. So therefore, it's the, having a good harvest is the result of your good actions. So therefore, what are you doing worshiping somebody? If you're going to worship anybody, don't worship the supplier of the rain. Why don't you worship this mountain over here? It's such a nice mountain, giving us jewels. It's, it, it, it beautifies our whole community, the neighborhood. We like to play on it. We go in the caves. Might as well worship the mountain. Little mountain here, as opposed to worshiping a demigod, because he really, I didn't see him plowing the fields. What what did he have to do with our harvest? And why are you worshiping him anyway? So Krishna really, as a young boy, you could imagine, says, why, why are you doing it? Why? That's typically the question of a kid. Why? Well, why that? Oh, well, why this? Well, why something else? And you can never get to the end of the whys. You just try to, okay, is that enough? Are you done yet? No. Why? So, Krishna is a young child asking Nanda Maharaj, why? And then, Krishna, as a young boy, started to preach karma mamamsa to Nanda Maharaj and the older cowherd men, which is, you work and you get the fruits of your action. So, it's automatic is basically what Krishna was saying. It's going to come automatically. You do the, you put in and you get out. There's, there's, what is this worshiping a god? You don't need a god. You don't need a demigod. What you put in, you get out. That's karma. So, this karma mamamsa, they, they're interested in uh, worldly well-being. They want to get the results of their 
of their labor and they want to they want to elevate themselves to the to the highest standard of material enjoyment so they do all their karmic activity as best they can so that they get the highest result with the with an underlying aspiration on their part to to through their karmic activity through their ritualistic sacrifices through their following of specific scriptural injunctions and vows, uh, they can go to heaven. And in the scriptures, they find support for such actions. So here Jeeva is going to say that some of the scriptural statements that the, the karma mamamsa, the mamamsas follow, speak of eternal results coming from karmic action. You can, you can perform a sacrifice. You can conjure up the liquor of Soma Ross and you can drink it. And when you drink it, you'll go to heaven and live forever. And that's there in the scripture. Or if you perform the Chaturmasya Vrata, if you follow Chaturmasya perfectly, you go to heaven eternally. You go to Swarga. So these are statements in the scriptures. So Jiva Goswami is putting forth the argument. So now the Mamamsas, again, all this argument is there in that 87th chapter of the 10th canto where the personified Vedas are bringing out these truths. So this was this is their argument to themselves. So these are statements that they've made in themselves. They're the personified scriptures. They, the statements are there. So, well, in consideration of what we're talking about here, then from the karma mamamsa viewpoint, there cannot be creation nor destruction of the universe because these scriptural statements are very clear. Your residence in the heavenly planets is eternal. What part of eternal don't you understand? There cannot be any universal devastation because I've performed the Chaturmasya to get permanent residence in Swargaloka, the heavenly domain, and the scripture says it's eternal. So there, so much for your creation and dis, you know, dissolution of the universe. So much for your ideas. This in and of itself proves that the universe is eternal. So that's <coughs> what we're going to discuss to begin with this evening. In this way, the Vivartavad has been refuted. The idea that it's an illusion. But now we're, go now we're going to the other edge of the scale. Not only is it not an illusion, material life, not only is the world real, it's eternal. So well, let's go down that road. And here's the argument. Now the Mamamsaka, who accepts the universe as imperishable, stands up to present the following objections, saying, but Vedic statements like we have drunk soma juice and have become immortal, that's in the Rig Veda, and 
The piety of a person performing the Chaturmasya sacrifice is imperishable. Establish that the fruit of karma is eternal, so it is not possible that the universe is perishable. Reply. Anticipating this objection, the Shrutis reply. Your words delude. O Bhagavan, your words in the Shastra, though through, I'm sorry, their manifold powers of expression, namely their secondary and indicative forces or functions, delude those whose intelligence is dulled by the formal structure of Vedic hymnody. The word Utha refers to those hymns or verses in scripture that enjoyed sacrificial performances. The dull-witted, in respect to such hymns, are those whose intelligence has been blunted by the burden of exorbitant faith in Vedic rituals. So that's the Shruti's response. Now Jiva Goswani explains that. He unpacks that. The sense is this, he says. The Vedas, in the statement cited above, do not intend to say that the result of their sacrificial rituals is eternal, but merely to glorify them through the indicative sense or implied meaning lakshana. This is because the import of statements other than injunctions being subservient to specific injunctions culminates only in the injunctions themselves and not in any independent conclusion. In other words, other meanings that are there from different words in the scriptures, they have to support the scriptural injunctions. And we have to be able to to see those statements of supporting of the main underlying ideas that the scripture puts forward. You can't see them in and of themselves as injunctions. This requires some real some real discrimination on the part of the student. So we're going to talk about that discrimination a little bit and the different word usages in general. It's a very, very detailed subject uh, that, you know, from the from a logical viewpoint, you could really you could really dig deep into the into arriving at the proper understanding of what the scriptures are saying. So how do we do that? Well, we're lucky. We just take good guidance. We follow us. We have a, we have a sampradaya. We're following a, a lineage where everything has been unpacked for the most part. Of course, it has to be adapted to time, place, and circumstance. The acharyas do that. They take out the essence and and see how can it how can this be enacted in a way that everybody benefits spiritually. But as far as coming to a a definitive conclusion, well, paroksha bod, Krishna likes it. It's never quite as straightforward as you think it is. So you always need good guidance. You always need to be striving to understand more comprehensively, more knowledgeably, more, you need to, fully apply what you're learning from Scripture. 
in a way that makes sense and nourishes your spiritual practice. It's not all black and white. So statements in scriptures aren't all black and white. Scriptures aren't all black and white. In fact, they're scriptures for those in the mode of ignorance, those in the mode of passion, those in the mode of goodness. And then there's the Bhakti Shastra, which is for those that are above the modes of material nature entirely. So those injunctions in the scriptures are not going to be consistent because they're written for different classes of men under different circumstances. So other statements in the scriptures is what is what Jeeva is saying here have to support the main premise, the main idea. And how do well one would say, well, how do we get the main idea? I mean, where does that come from? Well, we're in a particular sampradaya. Where does our main ideas of what is the essence of scriptural content? Where does that come from for us? Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're we're gonna go with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's understanding of scripture and his understanding was passed on specifically to the Goswamis and from the Goswamis we get a written perspective which has become like our handbooks so our handbooks going forward are based upon Srimad Bhagavatam now we're studying the Sandarvas Jiva Goswami in the Tattva Sandarva has gone over this comprehensively for us why why the Bhagavatam is that scripture that mature spotless commentary on the Vedanta Sutra which is the commentary that's put forward with a specific interpretation by every Sampradaya every bona fide Sampradaya and every every evolution of the Sampradaya through time where a new theistic concept is introduced that wasn't really emphasized before. There's nothing new in the scriptures, but according to time, place, and circumstance, different parts of the scripture are emphasized for the edification and implementation of the practicing community of sadikas. So these different Vaishnav Sampradayas, they're all following the Veda and the mature the mature the commentary on the Veda is Vedanta Sutra, Brahma Sutra, and they give a commentary on the Brahma Sutra to bring uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Authenticity to their ideas, to their, inter- to, their, to their presentation of the scripture. I want to say interpretation, but no, it's not an interpretation. It's more of a revelation. They've come to a revelation that's, that's deeper and more meaningful within the practicing community. Within the, within the, so you have, look at our Sampradaya. We have Brahma. Well, he heard directly from Krishna. But going through time, we also have other significant 
understandings of what was given to Brahma. So you had Madhva. So Madhva gives a different meaning. And he also has. You have a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. Brahma, Madhva, Gaudiya Sampradaya. We'll come up to the Gaudiyas. We don't need a commentary. Let's just... The Vedanta Sutra was 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 authored by Srila Vyasadeva. So Srila Vyasadeva gave the most mature commentary by presenting the Srimad Bhagavatam. So we don't need one. Of course, the other Sampradaya scream in protest, no, you, then you're not a bona fide Sampradaya. Okay, Baladev, could you write one? Me? I don't know nothing about the Vedanta Sutra. I know what what I've learned from, from my guru, from Lord Chaitanya's, you know, I, I, that's what I know. Well, I'm sure you'll figure it out. We all bless you to do it. So we went to the deity, and the deity says, okay, I'll tell you what to write down. So uh, we call our commentary Govinda Bhashya. Well, let's just write down what the deity Govinda said about the Vedanta Sutra, put Baladev's name on it, and there we have it. Now, now we're bona fide, okay? Are you happy now? Now, let's go back to the Bhagavatam, which is the mature fruit of all the commentaries on Vedanta Sutra, and let's relish that. We don't care about these, you know, this, you know, the Brahma Sutra so much, because the Bhagavatam is so much more relishable for the, for the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. What's the Govinda Bhashya like? I was just thinking the same thing. Well, I have a translation in English. You can read it. It's a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. It starts oh, okay. out explaining explaining Vedanta Sutra. Oh. You know, Atato Brahma Jignasha. You know, now is the time to inquire into Brahman and all these aphorisms given there and explained. There's four basic cantos and those are bro- each broken into four parts. And, you know, it's a, it's a logical presentation of what's in the Vedas. The essence of the Vedas is Vedanta Sutra. And the explanation of Vedanta Sutra is how those aphorisms presented in the Vedanta Sutra uh, correspond to the overall theistic, theistic presentation of the Sampradaya as represented in, you know. Well, yes, all the, these are all Vaishnav Sampradayas. So, yes, they all see, they all see, see the, the Veda as, as a representative of, of, of Vaishnavism. Uh, they pull from the Veda those parts that are that, that tend to the, the worship of the Supreme. And then along comes Sankaracharya. He also gave his commentary. That's not, doesn't fall into that realm. He has his own idea. All right, so subservient understandings of words. What the personified Vedas are saying here is you can't take these statements that you're going to live in Swarga eternally, and those statements don't trump the other statements that the material universe is is being created and destroyed again and again. So you can't say the universe is 
eternal just based on those statements and disregarding everything else. In other words, you can't cherry pick those statements. So otherwise it would lead to the fault of conflicting assertions within the scripture. Technically that's called vakya beta. Conflicting assertions. You're going to, you know, the, the universe is always created and destroyed. It would be in conflict with the statement that the universe is eternal because you can perform a sacrifice, drink somadras, and live forever in heaven. So this would be conflicting. Uh, just as the enjoyment earned by karma in this world perishes in due course, so does the heavenly pleasure attained by pious deeds. And that's from another Upanishad. So there's another statement directly in conflict with that for the, from the uh, Chandogya Upanishad. So Jiva finishes up with this statement. Thus, that the world is eternally is only a misunderstanding of those who are foolishly attached to the fruits of their karma. In fact, the universe, even though real, is perishable because of its ever-changing character. Sri Kumarila Bhatta has himself said, this is significant, Jiva's quoting an authority of that school of thought. So this, you know, Kumarila Bhatta has made the following statement, and he's a mamamsa. He said, alternatively, on the authority of the Itihasas and Puranas, the creation and dissolution are also accepted. So he, one of their main speakers, has said, yeah, the creation comes and goes. To touch upon different usages of statements, um, I won't go deeply into it, but let's just look at it kind of in a, in a bit of a superficial way. Um, every word can have three different kinds of meaning. It can have the primary meaning, it can have an indicated meaning, and it can have an applied, implied meaning. There's so, I will, I will get there. Sri Jiva, however, takes these statements to be part of the Atharvad laudatory passages. In other words, he's they're glorifying karma because they're trying to pull people into the fold. Hey, if you perform a sacrifice, you know, if you give in charity, you're going to go to heaven. So these are laudatory. But, you know, sometimes we may overstate things um, to get people on board. So we overstate the good results of drinking soma juice or performing a sacrifice. Or we overstate the rapid ascent through the stages of sadhana bhakti. Oh, you know, Come on, just just go in there and chant around, and in no time you'll you'll be at the stage of of bhava. You'll be tasting Krishna. You'll be seeing Krishna everywhere. Yeah, okay. So it was nice hearing that for the first first few feasts, but after 20 years, you're saying saying to yourself, 
wow, there's something really wrong with me. <laughs> but the fact is, there's nothing wrong with you. You just have a conception of time that isn't quite synced up perfectly with what the scriptures say when they say it happens immediately. They're immediate and are immediate. We're seeing it from a different perspective. So, you know, there's an explanation given of what? Taking a needle through a, through a, making a garland through a lot of petals. You're pushing it through, but it is going through each petal individually. And you look at time, our time is like, I mean, what, we live maybe a hundred years? It's nothing compared to the lifetime of on other planetary systems that are, you know, and then there's animals living in our environment, insects, their whole, their whole existence in that body is in a day. Our whole existence would be a, not even a, a moment in the existence of some like, like Brahma, you know, our whole, our whole lifetime. He looked away for a moment and a year had passed on earth. A moment. <coughs> Where does Calvary Boys go? Whoa. What's going on? They're all back here. That's it. That's And a whole year had transpired. So you can imagine. So we would say it's an exaggeration. It is and it isn't. That's the, that's the nature of Scripture. So, according to Purva Mimamsa, there are five types of statements in the Vedas. Namely, injunctive, vidi, prohibitive, niseda, names, namadeya, mantra, and laudatory or explanatory passages, Arthur Vaughn. The real import of the Vedas, according to Jamini, is in its injunctions or vidis. Therefore, the purpose of all Vedic passages is found in its Vidhi statements or injunctions. As such, the injunctions are fully independent, whereas other kinds of statements are supplementary and subsidiary to them. If these secondary statements are accepted as independent, the defect known as vacubeda or conflicting injunctions comes about. We can take these kind of statements and break it down into those three general categories, primary, indicated and implied. So let's look at those in a practical way. And he gives an interesting example here. And I'm just going to use that example because it, it's simple. The author has, a, has, a, has his own ashram called Jiva Institute. The whole institute is Jiva Goswami. <laughs> so you could say that Jiva Institute is on a particular road in Vrindavan, which it is. But that's, that's not what's meant by the statement. Because if you took it literally, Jiva Institute is on Krishna Road in Vrindavan, then what? Jiva Institute sitting in the middle of the road? So we don't take it that way. We take it that it's, it's indicated that by that statement that Jiva Institute is, is, is right there on the road. But it's not literally 
on the road. So it's an indicated statement. So then your question is, what's the difference between indicated and implied? Indicated and implied, there's some implied meaning by saving, saying that Jiva Institute's on Krishna Road. You can understand that it's, it's close to the road. That's implied. That means you don't have to go a far distance from the road to get to the, to the Institute building. So, just some ways to understand the different way words are used, padas are used in, in, uh, in Sanskrit, and um, what's being brought out here. To be further noted that when Mimamsas that wherever Mimamsa accepts the dissolution and creation of the universe, they do so only partially. They do not accept complete annihilation. So even in their philosophy, they look at it from their perspective, as we all do. So they look at it from their perspective. Otherwise, they in turn explain that the statements in the Vedas, they in turn have their way of explaining things. And they explain the, that in the Vedas or Puranas confirming the creation and dissolution are only a kind of Arthavad. Okay? In that they serve as explanations to injunctions, Vidhi. So when they accept the statements in the Vedas that there's a creation and a dissolution, they accept those as Arthavad. They don't accept them as, as absolute ontology. They don't accept them absolutely. Just as we don't accept their statements that they take from the Vedas regarding Soma Ras or Chartamasya as, as absolute statements. So everybody's looking at it from their perspective. Going on to the next part of this Anacheda. The universe is not non-different from Paramatma. It's not non-different. It's the same as Paramatma. An alternative explanation of the verse is now being offered, starting with the response to the objection. But we are not trying to establish non-distinction between cause and effect or between God and the universe here. Rather, because the universe arises from the reality as an earring is generated from gold, we will first establish the difference and then deny it. So now we talk about grades of existence, sata. Things exist in different grades. Sometimes there is a degradation. Sometimes the category of existence is downgraded. Three reasons are tendered to show such downgrading from the absolute to the empirical grade of existence. So let's talk about three grades of existence and that will kind of give us a, an, an insight into what Jeeva is trying to express here. What he's trying to do is just bring us back around to that basic beta conception that the universe is real because it is a manifestation of the Shakti of Paramatma. So let's not get too far off track here. Three grades of existence. Paramartika, absolute or ontological reality, which is compared to the gold and gold ornaments. There's no denying it. 
It's an ontological truth that Paramatma pervades the material creation through his Shakti. It's, it's, it's undeniable. Or clay in a clay pot. So just as gold is in jewelry and just as clay is in a clay pot, Paramatma is in the material universe. It's an ontological reality. There's a Pratibhasika grade of existence. It's not ontological reality, but it is an illusory reality, which we've gone over. It's like that silver you see in an oyster shell that you may put a metal construct on and say it's silver because that's the way you're seeing it, but it isn't. So, if you look at the word, Pratibhasika, it's an abbas. It's, you, you're, it's a reflection of your mental outlook on something that gives it any reality at all. But in reality, that silver is not silver, and that snake is not a snake. So, Pratibhasika is another grade of existence. It's an illusory grade of existence. It's an illusion that you buy into. It's not an illusion. It's, it's an illusion because it's not based in a reality. But that doesn't mean you didn't use real ideas and real experiences to project that reality. You've seen silver. You've seen a snake. So it's not all together. It is an illusion, but what's the illusion based on? Something real. Something real. Now, this is going to be played out a little bit more here. And I'm going to try to wrap up this annotator because there's, I mean, how, you know, we want to really get the essence we know of what Jiva Goswami's presenting. But otherwise, if there wasn't a reality to begin with, it would be an infinite regress. Now that's talked about in detail in the commentary here because there are schools of thought, Buddhist schools of thought, schools of thought even, even within other transcendental disciplines that look on the world as an illusion. So Jiva asks the question, okay, if, the, if it's an illusion in the ultimate issue, where did it start? It had to start somewhere. So he uses an argument, he uses an explanation of an endless caravan of blind men. So all these blind men, a blind man walks up to you and say, here's a gold coin. You'd say, well, how do you know it's gold? My friend told me. I can see your friend. He's blind as you are. Oh, but his friend told him. That guy's blind too. <laughs> you may not be able to see him, but I can tell you. <laughs> Not who is your friend, friend, but your friend's friend is blind. Oh, but he, 
heard from his friend. Yeah, that guy's blind too. So there's an endless line of, of blind men who are accepting the fact that this is a gold coin. If there's to be any validity to what they're saying, at some point along the line, there has to be a seeing man. And then it all falls into place. Then their statement has some reality. In a similar way, we accept the material universe because it's based on the reality of Paramatma. And you're saying that the universe is unreal. Where did you even get the idea? I mean, it goes. you can go back in an infinite regress, but at a certain point, the, the idea that it's an illusion of or an imposition of of what? There had to be something there in the beginning that it is based upon. And that basis has to be a basis in reality. And that reality is the absolute truth. So eventually we have to come back to the point that the underlying principle upon which the material manifestation is based is not an illusion based on infinite regressions. Now, there's both Buddhist schools of thought and uh, sunk, uh, you know, Mayavad schools of thought that buy into this. But where did those initial impressions come from? Well, they came from the last creation. Okay. And what was that creation? Well, that was also an illusion. Well, okay. Where did those samskaras come from? that make you think the universe is unreal, that, but you have, you're projecting it through your mental application of prior impressions and you're accepting it as real. But it's not really real. It doesn't exist at all. There's only Brahman. But at a certain point, well, how far back can you go? It's an endless regression. Do you understand the idea? Endless regression. At some point, it had to be rate based on a reality. So, the Sankar, whether you, whatever school of thought you have, whether it's a Buddhist or or the you know um, Sankaracharya school of of radical non-dualism, there had to be something to begin with to give some validity. Otherwise, how did you make it all up? How did you make it all up if it was all based on something that didn't exist to begin with? That's the question. So that's Jiva's question. You answer that question and then I'll make consider. But I don't think you can answer that question. Because for anything to be even a projection, there had to be the original snake that you had experience of. There had to be the original silver that you had experience of. Yes, I agree, an oyster silver is not silver. I agree, a rope in the dark is not a snake. But there are snakes and there is silver. And you can go through your endless regression, but you've got to come back to a reality, an absolute truth, which truly exists. So the universe has to have a basis in reality. So the third of the three grades of existence, sata. Grades of existence. The third sata is called 
vyavaharika, conventional or empirical reality. So, in other words, it's it's accepted just. It may not be an ontological truth, but it's a it's a culturally accepted truth. Um, conventional empirical reality. We accept certain things, like we accept that the Earth is round. I know there are devotees out there that will tell you it's not round. Okay, and. Well, that I can accept, but <laughs> but you have to understand the reason, the way that I can accept that is the way that's presented in the Bhagavatam. That we can accept that uh, you know the whole universe, the whole thing exists within the stem of coming from the transcendental body of the Lord. How big is the Lord's body? It's unlimitedly, you know. It's and it's not made of matter. Neither is the turtle. It's not a material turtle. It's it's the supreme Lord. His form is transcendental. It's not made of earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, or false ego. It's transcendental. So it's above our. We can't. We can't put our mind around it. We can't. We. It's it's like Brahman. But it's a form. The Lord can't accept a form. He can't express himself in a form. He can also express himself formlessly. That's his nature. He can do whatever he likes. Sacha Kalpa. However he wants to present himself to his devotee, he can. However he wants to present his material universe for the for a, for a, for the an understanding of what the universe is actually resting on, because that's what the idea is. What's the earth resting on? It's just like statements in the Vedas. Well, this demon had a million heads. Did he have technically, ontologically, a million heads? Or is it to say he thought a lot of himself? I mean, really. So, Scriptural statements, they're made in such a way to, to bring out a reality about a personality like a demon with a million heads. I don't know, did somebody count his heads? I mean, can you count to him? I mean, or are they expressing the fact that this demon, he had, had quite a sense of himself and other people felt like this of him, that he was overwhelmingly big-headed. So these different kinds of existences are there. They're expressed in words in the scripture and we require good guidance in order to fully understand what the scriptures are saying. I think we can walk away with that for this evening. Are there any questions? Prabhu, um, <clears throat> when you were saying about the um, uh, what was it? The what's it? The infinite regression is that what you said? Mm -hmm. like, like going back. Um, isn't that the same as like or similar as to like our karma? Like we can't 
we, we just happen to accept the fact that we've been in this situation like eternally and we can't yeah. really trace it so we kind of we just write it off to that idea because we can't trace out our trace out a beginning that's not the way it's been presented in scripture and and according to the to the overall siddhanta of this sampradaya the siddhanta of the sampradaya indicates that you can't trace out a beginning that the universe it's not like it's circular, not a straight line, as Guru Maharaj would say. So you can't, was it a seed or was it a tree? You can't say it was first this or first that. So no, it's not. You're, you're looking at it as perhaps, perhaps it's a way just to, to put the question off. But that's not the way the Siddhanta of our Sampradaya. It is, it is an ontological reality that the material manifestation is eternal it's always been here and and uh, as far as your your in eternality that's also an established flat fact krishna makes it quite clear you know never was there a time when you did not exist nor i nor all these kings so, so those are ontological facts it's also an ontological fact that having once gone there you never return. So, without going deeply uh, philosophically into the point, those three things alone point to the to the acceptance of anadi karma, that the universe is is permanently permanently manifest. It didn't have a point in time where it came about. It's constantly cycling. The fact that you are eternal. And you cannot trace out your beginning. Eternal is eternal. And the fact that having once going to the spiritual realm, you never return to the material realm, then that that alone speaks to the fact that you've always been in this realm since you've, if you went to that realm, you've never come here again. Simple. It just makes sense, but I don't understand why there's this problem with that, like why that came about, the whole back to Godhead thing, or that that we're, how, how it doesn't, how could that be a problem in terms of it being an argument? It's, there's no real basis for an argument. Because in coming to the Western culture, you will find it's very, very deeply ingrained, this idea of fall from grace. You made a choice. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your free will to be here. Oh, it's just a Christian-based idea. It's it's the way the Acharyas dealt with that idea. So even my spiritual master said, you were with Krishna if I could, then you chose to leave. He said that, though. Absolutely said it. Okay, so that's what the problem is. Well, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's a, it's it's it was it's a way for him to set aside a deep theistic discussion until there'd been a furtherance of, and a deepening of the faith of his new devotees. Because they all came from that background wherein there had to be a fall from grace. We also accept that God has shows no favoritism 
But it's really a problem. It's a problem when you say, well, there's no favoritism, but here I am in the material world. Yeah, but you don't understand the material world enough to understand that there that no favoritism actually is okay. The only thing that's the only thing that's creating your buying into this material world is the fact that you're accepting ignorance as reality. You have a continually you're being offered the opportunity to remove the ignorance and continually we're saying, No, I'm happy here. You have to be willing to understand that you are pure spirit soul, and you're not affected by the modes of material nature. Well, I'm affected. Look, I'm getting a cold. I feel cold. This and that and another thing. No. If you if you were to rectify your, your outlook on things and purify your consciousness through some simple discipline, you'd see the world through the eyes of Shastra. You'd see the world through the as a sadhu does. You would experience the world as they do. They're not affected. Why are you affected? Because you buy into an illusion. So then you get into a whole thing. You know, well, is it God? You know, God make, makes me accept an illusion. Yeah, but he also gives you the opportunity. You have free will. You can, you can give it up. Yeah, but the tree can't give it up. Yeah, I mean, so you get into some really deep, deep, theology there to come to an understanding and that's what we, why we have the sandarbas that's why we have the sadhus that's why we have the gurus that's why we we enter into this so that we can remove the ignorance that's that plays into our day-to-day acceptance of the miseries of material existence we're buying into it as swami says the major corporations have set up shop in our heart and here comes a simple, you know, street sweeper and says, "Just get the dirt out of there. You don't need the corporations." And we're saying, "No, I need that corporation. That makes me happy. That new car and the new wife and the new kids and the new job and the new this and that and a hundred other things. I can't give up those corporations. They keep me going. That's what they're what I live for. Well, if you give up that as this concept of what you live for, you may see life a different way." We're buying into an illusion. Whose fault is that? Then we get into the whole thing, circular regression. Well, it's because Krishna started it. No, Krishna didn't start it. It's always been there. Well, if it's always been there, then you've always been offered immense opportunity to put an end to that illusion. Because the material world, if you look to the Shastra, Krishna's coming again and again. He's sending his representatives. Yada, yada, he dharmasya, glanir, bhavati, dvarata. So he's doing his part. He's there. He's inventing it every yuga. He's inventing, inventing it every species of life. He's inventing again and again. And we're just not taking it, advantage of those advents. Whose fault's that? It's just a question we need to ask ourselves. <laughs> All right, I'll stop there for tonight. Thank you so much for your association.